Father, we just thank you that you are not only revealing to us that you're the creator, but you're the sustainer. You know our hearts. You know everything about us. And Father, I pray tonight that we would have possibly a definitive moment, a real epiphany about who you are, how great you are, the sense of your majesty, the sense of your awesomeness, Lord. And I pray that no matter what our circumstances are tonight, that your, our confidence in you will arise, that we will be strong in you, Father, that we will have hope welling up within us, that we will recognize that you truly are in control of all of the happenstances in our lives and that you love each one of us, and that you are guiding our steps, and that you are our provider, and that you will care for us, Father. Lord, I pray tonight that we will have courage, that we will be encouraged, that we will be comforted, that we will gain a greater understanding as to who you are, Father. And as our thoughts of you intensify and grow and increase, may our confidence grow as well, Father. May our trust in you develop, and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. I'm just going to move this thing over here. Uh, okay. This is as far as it wants to go. All right. We'll do it this way. Okay. We're going to turn in our Bibles to the book of Job tonight. Job chapter 9. And uh, some of you may not realize this, but last year I did a series of messages on the book of Job. Some of you can remember that. Others of you may be new. This may be your first time tonight. doesn't really matter. What I'm going to share tonight, you don't have to know the book of Job, and hopefully I'll fill in some blanks for you. Viktor Frankl was a very interesting gentleman. He actually was a Holocaust survivor. Now, how many can imagine living through a Holocaust experience? You know, you're a Jewish survivor, seeing all those people dying around you, the hopelessness, the despair, the darkness. You know, questions are asked. These are Jewish people. They know the Old Testament. Where's God in all of this? You can appreciate all of those things. And yet, Viktor Frankl maintained a hope all through that experience and wrote a number of books. And he states this thought. He said, just as a small fire is extinguished by a storm, the large fire is enhanced by it. In other words, the very thing that puts one fire out flames the fire. It just depends on how intense that fire is to begin with. So uh, what he's basically saying is that likewise, a weak faith is weakened by predicaments and catastrophes, whereas a strong faith is strengthened by them. And I think we don't understand it. You know, I remember years ago reading a proverb, Proverbs 24, 10, and it says, you know, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. And it basically is saying to us that what difficulties and crises and trials really do is reveal the true condition of our own soul. It's not so much that, you know, as we interpret, God doesn't care about me, where's God in this mess? But rather, it's, it's a, an, it, it exposes our true heart condition. And it helps us to understand where we're really at. Do we really have a strong faith in God? As a matter of fact, nominal Christians often uh, discover that uh, in suffering that their faith has not been in God itself. As a matter of fact, as one person said, believing God exists is not the same as trusting the God who exists. That's true. Think about it. You know, you read the book of James. James says that even the devil believes in God. But how many know it's not doing him any good? And so there's a lot of people that say to me all the time, well, I believe in God. Well, that's, one, that's great, but are you trusting 
in him? Are you putting your confidence in him? Are you looking to him as your hope and as your salvation? Are you looking to God? Are you putting your faith in him? And so many times when trials or difficulties or crisis comes, what people start finding out, especially if you grow up in the church and maybe your parents have faith, that you find out that you really don't have any of your own personal faith. What you have is the faith of your parents. And what that crisis does is make you realize that you have to have your own faith, that you have to come to a place where you have an encounter with God, where God becomes real to you, where God answers your prayer, where you experience God for yourself and not, you know, somebody else's faith. You know, we see that sometimes we're in a very vibrant church and people have dynamic faith and we become a part of it and it begins to carry us along. And all of a sudden, you know, we find ourselves maybe in a difficulty or trial and we don't really have a personal faith. It's the faith of everybody else. And you know, I saw this especially as a young person in Bible college. You know, you'd be in a wonderful environment listening to great teachers teach on the Bible and you'd have dynamic chapel service and people were excited. Maybe you're on a missions trip like these young people did. Everything's exciting. You know, God is answering prayer. We're really excited. We're, we're prepped up and ready to go, you know. But a few weeks after the missions trip and everything is gone, the excitement is gone, does our faith begin to wane and begin to, you know, slowly ebb away and we go you know I remember those moments but this is where I'm at today so God wants to really help us develop a dynamic faith in our life as a matter of fact genuine faith will be tested while false faith will be lost if we have a true faith in God it doesn't matter what comes our way we go deeper into God if we have a superficial faith maybe we don't know God in a personal way the tragedies come we begin to question God's goodness does God care about me does he love me what's going on here and sometimes I've heard people say I don't even know if God exists anymore I've heard all these comments over the years so why does God allow these things to happen well, you know, last year I did this series of messages on the book of Job, and this book addressed some very significant issues, one of which deals with the idea of suffering. And I think we've all had experiences. If you live life long enough, you will suffer something in life. You will suffer misunderstanding, rejection maybe. You will maybe suffer abuse. You will suffer losses in your life. You know, your plans won't always work out the way you think they ought to. You'll have disappointment in life. How many of you have already figured this out? This is kind of the way life works. And you have these experiences in your life. And so... Um, one of the main ideas from the book of Job was that as you read the Old Testament, there is a, you know, the Bible teaches almost a progressive understanding as to the nature of God. You know, you start out in the Old Testament, they had a very underdeveloped understanding of the afterlife. I don't know if you realize that. There's really only one Old Testament text that deals with the resurrection after the dead, and that's in the book of Daniel. So when you're reading the book of Job's, there's a very underdeveloped understanding of what happens after this life. And so, you know, they're very concerned about what's happening in this life, and as we ought to all to be. We, we are concerned about what's happening in this life. And they had this mentality, this understanding that if someone suffered, it was because, you know, God was punishing them for the sins that they had committed. And so if you were suffering a lot, it was because you had sinned a lot. And, uh, you know, that, that has some very deep ramifications. You know, you think about it, uh, it's kind of faulty reasoning when you, when you really consider. I was listening to somebody lecture uh, not too long ago, and he was explaining the idea, you know, we have these kind of philosophical propositions. You know, if it rains, the sidewalk will get wet. Therefore, the sidewalk is wet, it is raining. Now, you can say, if it rains, the sidewalk will get wet, 
But you cannot immediately make the jump that because the sidewalk is wet, it is raining. You know, the sprinkler could be on. You see? And a lot of times we develop faulty understanding. We jump to the wrong conclusions on things. Anybody have ever done that? You've jumped to the wrong conclusions. And sometimes we jump to the wrong conclusions about who God is and about how God is working in our lives and in the lives of people around us. And it creates a lot of difficulty. As a matter of fact, one of uh, Job's friends, a man by the name of Bildad, in his argument, he's basically saying, listen, and all of these guys were saying the same thing. Job, Listen, if you're suffering this badly, you must have done something really bad. And look, God's good. Just cough it up. You know, admit that you've sinned, and uh, God will forgive you. And Job says, listen, I know I have sinned in the past, but I didn't do anything of this magnitude to deserve this kind of suffering. So I'm not going to confess that I've done something I didn't do. You know, I have no idea. Now, how many know that Job never understood what was going on? If you read the book... The first two chapters as a prologue, it describes that Satan was before God and said, hey, you know, God initiates the conversation. Hey, have you considered my servant Job? There's nobody else like him on the earth. He's a blameless and upright man. He fears me and he avoids evil. And uh, Satan says, well, hey, you know what? Look, the way you treat the guy. I mean, he's the richest guy in the East. He's smart. He's got everything going for him. I mean, if you treat people like that, no wonder they're going to serve you. You know, I'll, let you, I'll tell you what. You take all that stuff away from him, he's going to curse you and want you to be out of his life. And God says, well, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll go ahead and do this. And, uh, you know, it's an amazing story, right? And poor old Job doesn't even know what hits him. You know, he gets smashed around, and he's pretty soon saying, you know, well, I guess God gives, God takes away. I mean, Job maintained his integrity. Job continued to trust God. Job continued to fear God, even though he didn't understand what was going on. And we read that. That's kind of the prologue. By the way, what's really fascinating about that book is God never explains to Job why he takes him through the experience. You know, and a lot of us are walking around going, why God, why God, why me? Why are you allowing this stuff? Hey, God may never give you an answer. He never answered Job's question. You know, Job had to come to a place in his life where he said, hey, even though I don't get what God's doing, I'm going to still trust him. And that's an important place to get to in our lives. But Bildad says this, you know, well, listen, Job, of course, you have to come back from where Bildad is looking at it. And he says, hey, God's always going to do the right thing, right? And he says it this way in Job chapter 8, verse 3, does God pervert justice? In other words, does the Almighty pervert what is right? I mean, if God, I mean, what, what's the answer to this question? This is rhetorical questions. Is God going to do the wrong thing? What's the answer? Of course not. And so basically Bildad is saying, you know, God's not going to do the wrong thing. So therefore, if, if you know, you're experiencing this bad stuff, you've got to be a bad dude. You know, that's his argument. And Job comes along and he says to him, look, I don't disagree with what you just said. God does not pervert justice. You just come, you're coming at it from the wrong perspective. You don't have a right understanding. And so Job begins to challenge his friends in their wrong understanding as to the nature and the working of God. Now, you and I need to know that we will never fully understand God. God is incomprehensible. And I think it's really important. And let me just say this that as Job is responding back to his friends, he's revealing to them something that, of their simplicity of, of, of their thinking. He's just challenging them. He's saying, hey, you guys aren't thinking straight about this. 
God is beyond what you guys are talking about. There's a mystery here. I don't know what it is, but your premise is wrong, and I'd really like to have God, and I'd really like to talk to him and find out what is going on because right now I'm perplexed at what's happening in my life, but what you guys are talking about, you're out to lunch as far as Job is concerned. And so this is Job's response, and we pick it up in Job chapter 9, verses 2 through 5. He says, Indeed, I know that this is true, that God is just, but how can a mere mortal prove, how can mere mortals prove their innocence before God? Though they wished to dispute with him, they could not answer him one time out of a thousand. And here's my text. I have two of them tonight. His wisdom is profound, his power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? In other words, look at I am no match for God. I mean, I'd like to put God under the scrutiny, but you know what? God's wisdom is beyond mine. God's power is vast. And, you know, you, know, you come up against God, you're not going to win. You're not going to win in this discussion. And so Job is a little bit concerned about the situation, uh, that he wants you know, to communicate with God, but he's a little bit afraid of God. And he goes on to say, he, speaking of God, moves the mountains without their knowing it, and overturns them in his anger. He is the maker of the bear and the orion. This is the stars and the constellations in the sky. God's the creator of the universe. And the uh, Pleiades and the constellations of the south. And then he says this. He performs wonders uh, that cannot be fathomed. Miracles that cannot be counted. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I don't perceive him. If he snatches away, who can stop him? In other words, you know, Job had lost his children. So he's basically saying, if God's going to take him, who can stop God, right? If God decides he's going to do something, who's going to hold him back from doing that? He said, who can say to him, what are you doing? In other words, who can really question God? Who has any authority to question God? That's what Job is saying. You know, this past few weeks I've been gone on vacation and when I do that I have an opportunity to do a little bit more reading and I love to do that and I was reading a very uh, an old book a classic by A.W. Tozer how many have ever heard of Tozer before some of you Uh, he wrote a book and I got this you know online electronically for 99 cents so you know it's only 117 pages but it's very powerful you know he says things in a very succinct way and the title of the book is the knowledge of the holy. The knowledge of the holy. He wrote this book in 1961. He died in 1963. He was a pastor for probably 40 years. So he, he was a deep thinker. And this is what he said. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, that, that, I want you to just stop there for a minute and think about that. What you and I believe about God is the single most important thing about you. Why? Because what you believe about God is going to define your entire life. It's going to shape you. It's going to either, you're going to have a, a, an amazing high view of God. It's going to, you know, strike you in such a way. It's going to shape your thinking. You know, the greater our view of God is, the healthier we become. You see, and it's, it's amazing what happens. I, and then he goes on to say this, wrong ideas about God are not only the fountain from which the polluted waters of idolatry flow, they are themselves idolatrous. 
Now, what is he saying there? Let me, let me just maybe unpack this a little bit. What he's basically saying is simply this. When you and I do not have a right understanding of who God is, therefore we have a wrong understanding or an erroneous understanding of God, what we have actually done is diminish God for who he is, and we're basically worshiping something other than who God is. And that's a big problem in our lives. Because now we're actually worshiping an idol. We're not worshiping God at all. And so a lot of times we don't see ourselves as idolaters. We don't think of ourselves as that. But if we don't have a right view of God, then we're worshiping something other than God. That's what Tozer's challenging us with. He says, the idolater simply imagines things about God and acts as if they're true. So necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God that when our concept in any measure declines, the church with her worship and her moral standards decline along with it. So some of us, you know, kind of wonder, you know, why is the church today seeming more, it's kind of in a weakened condition. Why isn't the church more vibrant? Why isn't the church, you know, in a sense, you know, more godly, more like God? Why isn't the church like this? And the answer is, according to Tozer, is because we just don't know God very well. We have a wrong understanding of who he is. And if we really, you know, start connecting with who he is. Now, by the way, we can think about this. We're only going to know so much about God. And we can only learn about God from a number of places. We can learn about God from his created world. We can learn about God from his revelation, his special revelation called the Bible. But the reality is we need God's spirit helping us comprehend who God is. But think about this now. We're trying to grasp an infinite being with a finite mind. We're we're trying to grasp an unlimited person with limitations within ourselves. How many know that's a pretty difficult task? So we're gonna be at a disadvantage. Are you guys getting this? So it's very important that with what we do get, it's right. Our understanding is correct in as far as we're able to grasp it. And then he says the first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. Do you know our culture today really has humanity or man at the center stage of life and God is somewhere in the background and for some people he's not even on the set. And you can imagine the problem with that. That means that we do not have a right understanding of God and therefore we actually are diminishing ourselves rather than, you know, isn't it funny we put ourselves forward as being something special as humanity, but in reality we're actually diminishing ourselves. And when you and I have the highest view of God, when we see God at center stage, when we exalt him for who he is and we acknowledge him for who he is, then that begins to impact and penetrate our hearts and mind and our lives become transformed because now we have a correct view of who God is. And by the way, right thinking produces right behavior. And so we need a transformation in our minds. You know, I had someone come to me this week. They were battling suicide. It was kind of a serious situation. And they said, I don't even know why I do what I do. It's just habitual now. I, I mean to do the right thing, but without thinking, I'm doing the wrong thing. What's wrong with me? I'm tired of this. I don't want to be like this anymore. I'm despairing of life. And I said, what happened was you started out thinking the right way. And over time, you thought, sorry, you thought the wrong way. And eventually, it led to the wrong actions. And eventually, those wrong actions became habits. And now you don't even think about it. It's just automatic. 
I said, the only way to break that is to begin to think right things and build right actions and that you develop right habits. And then I started talking from the scriptures about how God talks about the power of our minds. He talks about meditating on God's word day and night. He talks about renewing our minds. He talks about the warfare that's in our minds, pulling down every thought that's exalting itself against the knowledge of God and making it obedient unto Christ. So there's this whole thing that's going on in our minds. We had a great discussion. After 90 minutes, he said, Pastor, I came in absolute despair, and I'm leaving with absolute hope. And I, he, I said, you know why that is? And he said, no. I said, because you had an obscured view of who God is. And after 90 minutes, now you see him clearly. And the moment you have God in the equation, hope enters the equation. And when God is not in the equation, you have no hope. Amen. It's exactly what happens. So I want to take a look here as Job begins to uh, teach us something about the nature of God today. And I want to just look at three things regarding the nature of God from these texts that we've pulled out of the book of Job. And the first one is simply that God is omniscient. And that's a very fancy word for saying that God knows everything. And I want to talk a little bit tonight about the fact that God not only knows everything, but he's also all wise. He knows everything and he knows what to do. Job says in chapter 12, verse 13, to God belong wisdom and power, counsel and understanding are his. Job states that his wisdom is profound. He's, he just knows everything. I love, how, I love the book of Isaiah because Isaiah has a way of bringing us a, a lofty view of who God is. And I love chapter 40, one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. He says there, who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct who or who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? It's a rhetorical question. What's the answer? No one can do that. No one's ever instructed God. God doesn't have to learn anything because God knows everything. Isn't that an amazing? How would you like to meet somebody that knows everything? He's never had to learn anything because he knows everything. You know, I love learning. I don't know everything. I'm the first one to admit it. You know, I got huge holes in my, my understanding. You know, I keep trying to learn more. God's unlike me. You know, we sang something very profound tonight. I don't think we always understand what we're singing. Bless his holy name. Do we know what the word holy really means? It means God is other than us. He's beyond us. He's unlike us. You know, and so often what I think people do is we think that God is like us. And so we'll say things like, well, God wouldn't do that. And what we really mean is we wouldn't do that. And so we attribute to God what we would or would not do. And I hear people, especially non-believers, go, well, God's loving. He'd never do that. I go, hold it. Don't even preference that that way. You don't even know what God would do because you don't know God. I think you better get to know who he is. And this is the book that reveals him. So don't tell me what God will or won't do. Because a lot of times what they're saying to me is something I know God will do. You know? But they don't want to believe that. Or will they'll say, well, the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. I'm going, it's the same God. Well, I've heard that lots of times from people. They're really getting messed up in their thinking. It says, whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Another rhetorical question. Who taught God to do the right thing? Thank you. No one. It says, who was it that taught him the path of understanding? Who straightened God out? Who told him what to do? The answer is no one. These are all rhetorical questions. 
Then Isaiah shifts in this chapter and he starts using comparative terms to show how humanity does not stack up to God. I like this. Now think about it. He goes, surely all the nations are like a drop in a bucket. I remember one time I was preaching out of this chapter and I brought a bucket and I put a drop in it. And I said, now I want you to think about this for a minute. Seven billion people are represented by one drop and we're dropping it into a bucket. Now that's about as much impact we have in relationship to God. It's kind of a comparative thing to show us, you know, the whole earth with all of the people in it don't amount to very much when you're talking in relationship to God. Isn't that amazing? So we walk around strutting our stuff here all the time, you know, acting like we're big stuff, and I'm going, hey, we don't, all seven billion of us stacked up, we just make a drop in a bucket. That's what it says. Then it goes on to say, uh, they are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. I don't know, I was just out at Vancouver Island. It's a pretty big island. I drove around there. You know, that's a lot of dust. You know, but for God, that's no big thing, right? I mean, that's small stuff for him. And then he goes on to say, with whom will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? So Isaiah is basically stating that God is not in our league. How many know that? God's not playing on the same frequency as we're on. God is beyond us, folks. We need to understand that. You know, I think sometimes as evangelicals, what we've done, you know, because we, we want people to, you know, to know that they can have a personal relationship with God. We've really focused in on the eminence of God, that God is near. We can have a relationship, personal. That's good stuff, that God wants to be our friend. That's amazing stuff. But sometimes we've lost a sense of God's transcendence. And what do you mean by that, Pastor? It means that God is beyond us, that God is all-powerful. God's sovereign. He knows everything. God is almighty. God is majestic. God is full of glory. Amen. You know, he's all-powerful. We're going to talk about that one. Some of these powerful truths, you know, we can't even wrap our minds around this stuff, you see. And we lose a sight of that because we try to bring God down to our level. He's my buddy. Well, he's the most unusual friend you've ever had. I'm going to tell you, he is not like anybody you've ever had. He's a, we better have a little more respect for him than that, you know. Yeah, he's my friend. I'll just tell him what to do. Uh, excuse me, don't mess with God like that. But you know what I like about what he's talking about here? It says here in this chapter that God, or chapter 55, he says that God's thoughts and our thoughts, they're not the same. And our ways and God's ways are different. He says, as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. He, he makes a comparison. He says, as heaven is higher than earth, so God's thoughts and ways are higher than our thoughts and ways. But I love how he does this in its context. Do you know what he's really talking about here? You're going to love this. Look at verses five and six, the verses that came before this verse. Because this is, you know, I love quoting this, these two verses. But you know, let's read it in its context and we'll get an understanding of what are we talking about God's thoughts and ways different than ours. And it says this in verse six. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God for he will freely pardon. You know what God is saying? God is saying, I'm a forgiver. I love to forgive. I love pardoning. And by the way, is that our human response to hurt, abuse, and 
difficult things in our life, you know, we're just going, oh, this is so good. I get to forgive this person. You know, Lord, you know, I just want you to do so good in their life. Bless them. Or do we feel in our soul like, you know, an imprecatory psalm is about what we want to express. You know, like, Lord, stomp them out. Take them out. You know, vindicate me. You know, let's be honest. Don't we have a little bit of that, you know, the old nature? You know, I believe that when we have a forgiving heart, it's because the Spirit of God has touched us. Because the, the natural mind is really, you know, somebody's, t- you know, somebody's messing with me, I'm taking them out. You know? And if I can't take them out, I'm going to find somebody that can. You know? Right? We're going to get even somehow. We're going we're gonna to do damage here. You know, people get hurt. You know, they either cut people off, they stop talking to them, or they get mean, snipey, malicious, gossipy. We're hurt. You know, we are unlike God. That's what I'm talking about. God's ways and our ways are different. God's thoughts and our thoughts are different. Isn't it interesting? Jesus teaches us every day in our prayer to our Father. He says, Father, you know, when we're praying our prayer, we says, forgive us our sins or trespasses as we forgive those who sin and trespass against us. God's a forgiver. God's a forgetter. He chooses not to hold things against us. How many are happy God's forgiven you? How many are happy God forgets your sins? But are we good at doing that in return to other people? Mmm, pastor, now we're talking. You know, and that's what I'm saying. Isaiah points that out. This is not, we're not like this. This is, this is one of the ways and thoughts we're not like God. But God wants us to become like that. God wants to change our hearts. God wants us to have a forgiving spirit. You know, some of us go, you know, turning the other cheek, that just really doesn't work, Pastor. Well, I don't know. Jesus talked about doing it. You know, if he pointed it out, that's the right way. If he's pointing out that there's a better way, that forgiveness is more powerful, that if we're doing good to those that are doing evil to us, that we'll actually overcome the evil by the good which we do, don't you think God's smarter than we are? Don't you think he understands the way that will really work? And when we start retaliating and paying back an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, what we're really doing is just accentuating the problem because how, let's, be, let's be realistic. You know, if somebody hurts us, we don't just hurt them back in the same measure. That, by the way, was what the scriptures was teaching. You know, don't overdo it. You know, we go overboard. You know, we're taking these people out, right? That's what happens. Okay. But let me move on here. You know, some people say, well, this is just an Old Testament concept. No, this is in the New Testament. You know, God's ways are different than ours. Listen to what Paul says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. Isn't that great? I mean, God used suffering. God used the foolishness of coming in the flesh and being born of a baby. God used, you you know, this whole approach of instead of destroying Rome, you know, he just let Rome crucify him. Isn't that amazing? And he destroyed Rome by overcoming them and bringing them to himself. And eventually, the kingdom of God was ruling in Rome. Isn't that interesting? I'm just pointing that out. And the weakness of God, I I put down his crucifixion, is stronger than human strength. Job is reminding us that God's wisdom is profound. We wouldn't do it God's way. That's our big problem. How many of us know God, you know, speaks into our lives, and we go, I don't want to do that. You know, I got a problem with that. I got my own idea. I'm going to do it my own way. God says, no, listen to me. I've got a better way. No, 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 I'm going to do it my way. And what do we do? We go do it our way. And then we find out, you know, that wasn't very bright. You know, how many know licking a metal pole when it's minus 30 is not a bright thing to do? (laughs) Going to try it out. God says, don't do it. And we end up doing it anyways because, you know, we're going to do our thing. 
and we find out it's not working. Let me move on to the second uh, thing we see from our text, and it's simply that not only is God omniscient, God's omnipotent. In other words, God is all-powerful. Job says God's power is vast, and he uses both God's creation and the power of that creation to describe the power of God. In Job 26, 7, it says, He spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. How many said, you know, if you were making something, you wouldn't just hang it over nothing? You'd have to frame it with something. You know, how many think it's awesome God could just put the earth and, puts, and sticks it in thin air? I, I'm pretty impressed with God. I have to be honest. I am really impressed with God. That's pretty good stuff, right? Sticking the, you know, different planets in thin air and making them move at certain speeds around each other. I mean, I'm really impressed with God. I'm just letting you know. That's, that's what scientists are impressed. You know, all these scientists that are studying, they're impressed with God too. They don't know that, but they are. They're impressed with what God's doing. It says, he wraps up the waters in his clouds, yet the clouds do not burst under their weight. He covers the face of the full moon, spreading his clouds over it. He marks out the horizon of the face of the waters for a boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of the heavens quake, aghast at his rebuke. And these are but the outer fringe of his works. How faint the whisper we hear of him. Who then can understand the thunder of his power? How many were awake in this week? A little thunderstorm out there. <laughs> I tell you, that's pretty impressive, right? How many have ever been in an amazing thunderstorm? Whew. You know, you go down to that flat part of the world, southern Saskatchewan. I was out there one time. They had a thunderstorm. I went, unbelievable. It's in the middle of the night. It's raining really hard, but it's not nighttime. It looks like it's daytime. The whole place is lit up, you know? And I'm thinking, is there any safe place? And as I'm on the road, I'm feeling the ground vibrate from the noise. And I mean, there was bolts happening around. I'm going, okay, Lord, you got to protect me here, you know? <laughs> you follow what I'm saying? I mean, I'm impressed with you know, the awesomeness of God's authority and power. You know, if you think that's not impressive, let me give you another story. I remember going to Bible college my last year. My uh, sister-in-law and my brother-in-law show up from Alaska, flew into Seattle. We are going to school in Seattle. And the first thing my sister-in-law says coming off the plane, is that mountain going to blow? She was referring to Mount St. Helens. I went, no, don't worry about it. You're going to be okay. Well, we were in Seattle, but you know what? We didn't stay in Seattle. My brother-in-law had a brother in Spokane. He said, hey, would you mind taking me out there? Five-hour trip. No problem. We'll take you to Spokane. We're moving further away from the mountain, right? We get to Spokane, spend the night. The next day is Sunday, May 18th, 1981. So Patty and I, what do we do? We're Bible college students. We go to, you know, church on Sunday morning. That was a good decision, by the way. Don't miss church. Even though we had a five-hour trip back. I thought, well, no, we're going to go to church. And we started to drive away from Spokane. We were about an hour out near Ritzville. Some of you might know these locations on I-90. We're driving along, and I can see this huge blackness coming toward us. And I'm going, wow, we're in for a major storm. You know, like a thunder shower and all the rest of it. That's what I thought we were getting. But I wasn't focusing in on what was happening, right? So we were driving along, and then all of a sudden in front of us, the world came to an end. The headlights, I mean, the taillights right behind me, we all had our headlights on by this time. They just evaporated in front of me. It looked like we landed on the moon because now volcanic ash was pouring over top of us. We were now experiencing the wrath of Mount St. Helens, volcanic ash coming at us. Turned on the radio. What in the world is going on? Patty was freaking out. She thought the world had come to an end. I said, well, if it's 
coming to an end. We know where we're headed, right? You know, we're headed towards Jesus. That's all I know. But we heard on the radio the road had closed up ahead. Mount St. Helen had blown its lid. And so we turned back and drove into Spokane. The moment we got there, they quarantined the city for three days. We couldn't even leave the house. Isn't that amazing? The power of one volcano. Then afterwards, you're hearing all these reports of how many, you know, the power of a volcano exploding over top of all these atomic bombs. It was like many, many atomic bombs being blown apart. I'm just going, that's one mountain. That's one demonstration of the power of Almighty God. I love what Tozer reminds us of the fallacy of thinking that, you know, our culture today is putting its total trust in science and technology. Do you guys know that? How many know that's true? That's where we're at. We're kind of locked into that. You know, we believe in this stuff. We believe in this. But Tozer reminds us what we see in nature is simply the path of God's power and wisdom taken through creation. Properly, these are phenomena, not laws, but we call them laws by analogy with the arbitrary laws of society. In other words, we, we say these are the laws that, of governing our world. This is the law of nature. Hey, folks, this is consistent with who God is. And he goes on to say that science observes how the power of God operates, discovers a regular pattern somewhere, and fixes a law. The uniformity of God's power, uh, of God's activities in his creation, enables a scientist to predict the course of natural phenomena. What is he saying? He says God is so faithful, so regular that he's allowed certain systems to come into play. And we can actually observe how God has orchestrated our world. And we can actually say these are almost like laws. But they're just phenomena. He's not, they're, they're not really laws, he's saying. He says the uniformity of God's activity, they can predict. The trustworthiness of God's behavior in his world is the foundation of all scientific truth. Upon it, the scientist rests his faith, and from there he goes on to achieve great and useful things in such fields as navigation, chemistry, agriculture, and the medical arts. What is he saying? He's saying all the things that we're discovering as human beings is really we're just figuring out what God's doing out there. And I don't know if you realize this, but if you study this, and I have, what you'll discover is most of the scientists that, you know, that did all the great discoveries, most of them, they're Christians. Isn't that interesting? They recognize these are God's principles. You know, it's just in the last you know, maybe 30, 40, 50 years that we've moved away from this and we think that we're independent. We can actually call these things independent of God and somehow we're controlling these things as human beings. How many of you know that's kind of a lark? You know, we don't control anything. As a matter of fact, all you need to have is a tsunami, an earthquake, a volcano, and you start realizing how little we're controlling. True? We may be observing, but we're not controlling anything. The psalmist points out, one thing God has spoken, two things have I heard, power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love, and you reward everyone according to what they have done. So the question is, why is power such a big deal? Why is this so critical? Why is it so important that God is all-powerful? Well, let me give you an answer by a 17th century theologian by the name of Stephen Charnock. Some of these guys really thought about these things. Now, I'm going to read this, and it's not going to maybe make sense right off the bat. You've got to think a little differently. This is written, you know, three or 400 years, and I'm going to try to give you a little understanding of what he's saying here. He says, mercy was heard in government after man's fall. In other words, we never had a revelation of God's mercy until after we had sinned, okay? We never saw that expression of God. It says, innocent man was the object of God's goodness, not his mercy, until he made himself miserable. 
Now, how does, how does humanity make himself miserable? By sinning. You know, everyone goes, you want to be unhappy? Just keep sinning. Guarantee it's the best way to stay unhappy. How's that? You want to be a happy person? Knock it off. Right? Quit it. Because <laughs> you're just going to get miserable. That's what he's saying. He says, power was expressed in both these expressions of God, his mercy and his goodness. Now watch how he says this. He says, power is essential to the divine nature. It is true, mercy is essential, justice is essential, but power more apparently essential because no acts of mercy or justice or wisdom can be exercised by him without power, which is the ability to do the things that need to be done. That's what power is all about. You know, a lot of times people make some stupid sta- statements. You know, I hear this all the time. You know, God, if God can do everything and God can do anything, then why doesn't God do these things? You know, or it's, it's almost like they're trying to, you know, bait people into, you know, if God's all powerful, why does he allow this to happen? You've, you've probably heard some of this stuff. But let me just point out a fine little distinction about power. And I'm gonna do this by showing you an example of this fine distinction. Remember when Jesus was about ready to go to the cross? And Jesus said something very interesting. In Matthew chapter 26, he says, Do you not think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legion of angels? What is Jesus saying there? God has all power. As a matter of fact, Jesus is saying, I don't even have to die. He had never sinned. He could have left earth at any time. He could have sent angels from heaven. He could have taken out the whole Roman Empire. You know, I've read the book, the Bible. How how many remember the story of the Assyrians parked around Jerusalem and then in one night 185,000 are killed by one angel? Jesus, I could send 12 12 legions of angels and take care of the whole planet. How many know that's true? That's the truth. That's absolute power, by the way. But then Jesus says something very interesting in his next breath. He goes, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that says it must happen in this way? In other words, Jesus is saying, yeah, we could do it with all power this way, but we're gonna do it this way. And what he basically is is pointing out is simply this. He says, as his power is free from any acts of his will, it is called absolute power. And as it is joined with an act of his will, It is called ordinate power. Little distinction. It's still the same. It's God's power. But what God does with his power is join it to his will. What we need to know about God is that his power is always regulated by his wisdom and his will. Is that amazing? Could you imagine if God gave one of us all his power? That would be really bad. We would really mess things up. Right? How many think, you know, I think I could handle controlling the universe for 24 hours. I go, I don't want the job. No thanks. You know, it take a lot of wisdom, take a lot of power to handle what's going on in our world. So you say, well, you know, God may not be doing a good job, Pastor. Look at all the mess that's going on. I'm saying, hey, listen, God's allowing a whole bunch of us to make poor choices, but in the end, God's purposes are going to be prevailing. That's exactly what's happening. You know, we need to look at something about our lives. We're kind of like on location. What I mean by that is, consider this. God is, is, is a being that has always existed. He's outside of the realm of time. Take a picture of a train going down a track. 
You know, you're kind of in one location at one time. You know, you were somewhere, you're headed somewhere, but you're in this location. Where's God? He's kind of like the person in the helicopter. He sees the beginning of the train, he sees the end of the train. Isn't that amazing? So what, what am I saying? That God knew you the, before the day you were born, God knew you the day you're gonna die. God knows everything about your days. That's a pretty powerful thought. You know, we get, we, here's, here's us. We're sweating, we're anxious, we're worried. God goes, don't sweat it. I already know what's gonna happen. You just gotta trust me. You know, you gotta trust that I'm good. You gotta trust that I have your good in mind. You gotta trust that I have eternity in mind. You gotta trust that even though I'm allowing some negative things to happen right now, I have a big plan and it covers not just this moment, it covers all of eternity. That's why Paul could say, you know what? These are light afflictions compared to the eternal weight of glory we're gonna have. God knows all this stuff, but do we know it? No, we're stuck on the train. We're not having a helicopter view. We don't see the beginning from the end. But God sees all of these things. He goes on to say here in the Psalms that he rules forever by his power and his, wa- his eyes watch over the nations. I'm gonna just skip a bunch of scriptures here and just move on to my final point, okay? Just running out of time. And I want to get to it. And my final point is simply this. The final thing we need to learn from our text is that God is good. I wanted you to leave you on a positive note. Remember what Job says. He says, he performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. What do we mean when we say God is good? I like what Tozer says. God is tenderhearted and of quick sympathy. Now, how do you know that? How many know when you read the story of Jesus, what you're actually seeing is God in the flesh? You're seeing the heart of God. Read the miracles of Jesus, and many of them, just before the miracle happens, it says something like this, and Jesus was moved with compassion. That means he has quick sympathy. That means Jesus is not hard-hearted. Jesus is tender-hearted. When he sees people, his heart is moved. Isn't that amazing? And he does something... You and I can't always do something about it. God can do something about it. And many times, we see things that are happening, things that we don't understand. God is at work in those situations. Since God is immutable, which means unchanging, he never varies in the intensity of his loving kindness. We just lost our PowerPoint. He has never been kinder than he is now is, nor will he ever be less. Isn't that amazing? No, we're gonna, I'm not going to play that game. We're at the end anyways. Okay, so what is it saying? That God's kindness is steadfast. God will never be any kinder than he is right now or has ever been. He's always kind. Isn't that nice? I like that about God. Now, let's go back to Job in closing. Job had a little bit of a concern. See, he felt what's happening to me is not fair. And I would really like to get before God and present my case before God. I really believe I could present my case and argue that I don't deserve what I'm getting. I I want God to hear my case. But then, you know, Job's a little nervous. Because if you're going to start confronting God by what he's doing, you may not be any match for God as a human being. And he says it in chapter 9, where we are, in verse 32, he says, He is not a mere mortal like me that I might confront each other, well, that I might confront each other in court. In other words, I want to bring them to court, but I'm kind of afraid to do this. I mean, it is God, you know. 
And then he goes on to say, if only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me. So already we know Job is thinking God's giving him, you know, he's disciplining him. So Job is a little bit where these guys are at, but he doesn't quite understand why it's happening. He says, but I'm a little bit nervous about doing this, but I really want to have this day in court with God, but I'm a little nervous about God because you know what? I don't know, I'm a little scared of God. And I'd really like to have someone, you know, be my representative, someone who could advocate on my behalf. It would be nice to have that, he said. He said, so that his terror would frighten me no more. So basically, he said, I'm scared spitless of God. Then I would speak up without fear. So Job wants his day in court, but he's scared to get his day in court. How many are following this? He says, oh, that I have a, a mediator, someone that there. And you know, God hears that cry. And not so much in the book of Job, but later on, God himself comes in the flesh. And the Apostle Paul later writes this, for we have one mediator between God and men, or humanity, the man, Christ Jesus. And who stands when you and I come before him and we ask for his forgiveness and we come as his children and we, we confess our sins before him. The Bible says he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you read those beautiful words in, in 1 John chapter 2, he says, and he is a propitiation or an advocate for our sins. He's, he's our mediator. Jesus is the one standing with the Father. He's the one that's standing at the right hand of the Father. He is a high priest who's touched with the feelings of our infirmity. He's the one that's entreating the Father on our behalf. He is our mediator. Isn't that beautiful? Talk about the goodness of God. Isn't that great? I love it. We have what Job longed for. Job didn't have the same experience, but he expressed the human longing to be able to talk to God and, and to bring our petitions and to have boldness and confidence and to be heard by God and to have someone with an understanding, compassionate heart advocating on our behalf. And I want to declare to you tonight we have that. God is so good. But we're going to close the service tonight, and I'm going to have you stand as we do. What I basically tried to tell you tonight is simply this. Your view of God is defining your life. Is that true? It certainly is. If I see God as angry, I'm going to be afraid. See, recently I've been reading the Bible, and I've come to this deep conclusion. I should never be afraid. The Bible says, do not be afraid. How many times does it say it? Over and over again. As a matter of fact, I've come to the conclusion that if I'm afraid, it's because I don't have confidence in God. So I'm not trusting him. So I'm saying, God, I want to live a life absent of all fear. Isn't that a good? You know, I'm not talking about being startled, okay? That's a little different. That's a human reflection, right? But I'm talking about living in absence of fear. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Or to live a life in absolute peace and quiet confidence because I know God is for me. And if God is for me tonight, the scripture says, who can be against me? Doesn't matter how many people come against me, I go, well, yeah, but God's on my side. You know, if a thousand come at me, I go, I shall not fear. God is on my side. You know, read the scriptures. Our view of God your view of God is defining your life. 
How many here say, Pastor, I need a higher view of God. I need a greater view of God. I need to see God as He truly is and not as I think He is. I don't want to be worshiping a concept, a thought of God that's undignified and is unworthy of Him. I don't want to have an erroneous idea of who He is. I don't want to worship a God that I'm making up. I want to know Him and to know Him as life and joy and peace. So we're here tonight saying, Lord, I want to know you. I want to know you more. And when you know how good God is, isn't it, isn't it great to be able to say, you know, I have this concern. I have this problem. I have this burden. I just can't do it. I cannot. Maybe I'm struggling with overcoming in an area of my life, whatever it is. To know that God cares for me. You know, I, I was up this morning really early. It's probably five in the morning. I'm in my office, and I can hear the birds trees in our yard singing. And the first thought that comes to my mind, his eye is on the sparrow. He knows every sparrow in my yard. He knows what they're going to eat this morning. And Jesus says his eye is on the sparrow. He knows when a sparrow falls to the ground and dies. And then he goes on to say, how much more will your heavenly father care for you if he knows, you know, the life expectancy of a sparrow or the, how many hairs on her head? He can keep track of that. He can keep track of all of these things because he cares about us. See, we have to have a right view of God tonight. And when we have that, it changes us. Amen? So tonight, what I was going to have us do is real simple. If you're here tonight and you're saying, okay, pastor, would you pray with me that I would have a higher view of God? If that's you tonight, just raise your hand. I'm going to pray with you. Now, some of you tonight, you have a burden, you have a concern, you have a care. How many here, that's you tonight. Just raise your hand right now. Take your cares right now to someone who cares for you and know that he is the all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, all-good God that cares about you and I, his creation. That, that amazes me, you know. But I think about it. When my daughter was born, you know what? She didn't have to do one thing to make me love her. The moment she was born, I was in love with her. How many understand that? The moment a child is born, if it's your kid, you go, I'm in love with this kid. I want you to know God created you. He's in love with you. Is that an amazing thought? How many think it's neat? I'm, I'm, God's in love with me. I want you to say that. God is in love with me. Say it again. God is in love with me. How does that make you feel? How does that make you feel tonight? God's in love with you. Do you believe that tonight? I believe it. He's in love with me. He's in love with you tonight. Wow. Man, I, could, I felt such a confidence. I can come to God and say, Lord, man, you love me. I can tell you my problems. And you're not going to judge me and stomp on me. No. You're a good father. You're going to lift me up, and you're going to encourage me, and you're going to help me. That's the confidence I have in our God. Isn't that exciting to serve God? Man, I get so excited about him. How can you not get excited about someone as marvelous, as amazing? I, I, my journal today, all through my journal, I just kept saying, Lord, you are amazing. You are amazing. I am amazed at you. And it's more fun to serve Jesus today than it's ever been in my life. I'm having so much fun because I'm amazed by how good he is, how great he is, how powerful he is. Lord, I pray that you'll birth this brand this 
etch this, sketch it. Put it in our souls, oh God, how great, how good, how powerful, how wise, how loving, how kind, how forgiving you are tonight. And may we leave this place laying our burdens down because we know that you love us and you care about us and you can change our lives for the good. Help us to hear your voice tonight. Help us not to harden our hearts. Help us to obey your purpose and will for our lives. Because what you have in store for us is far better than any idea we could ever cook up. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.